Let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high-tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high-repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind in the basketball shooting machine industry that enables players and coaches to stay connected, design and upload training exercises, and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real-time adjustments and improved performance. It is, without question, the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to drdishbasketball.com or follow them on Twitter at drdishbball. Don't forget to mention Coaching You and receive $300 off on your next Dr. Dish purchase. That's right. Mention Coaching You or the podcast and get $300 off your Dr. Dish. Fast Model Sports is the world's most comprehensive versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, FastDraw. FastDraw bridges the gap between whiteboarding in the digital world with an incredibly easy-to-use interface that can be used on both your computer and iPad to providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. It doesn't stop there. Along with FastPro, they have other great programs such as Fast Scout, which helps coaches create clean, professional scouting reports customized for your team. FastModel is trusted and used by all NBA and WNBA teams, 85% of Division I college teams, and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills on their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Hello, I'm head coach Donnie Jones here at Stetson University. And thanks for being with us again as uh, we got another special guest here we're really excited about. And uh, I'm going to let Coach Sir uh, have the introductions here. Uh, I know he's very close to, to BJ, and we're excited to have him with us and share some incredible experiences and, and some knowledge that, that he's been a, uh, a part of during his years. And uh, we'll let Coach Sir take it from here. Go ahead, Coach. Thank you, Donnie. Uh... Our guest today, B.J. Armstrong, is a three-time world champion with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, he played for amazing – he's from Michigan. Uh, knew him first when I was coaching the Pistons, and he played for Brother Rice High School, a phenomenal high school in Birmingham. And he went to play for George Raveling, Hall of Famer at Iowa, drafted first round by the Bulls, played for the great Doug Collins, played then for Phil Jackson, then came and finished his career playing for Chuck Daly. So you played for all these Hall of Fame coaches, but tell me, who was the best assistant coach you ever worked with? 
Coach Sir, hands down. <laughs> Coach Sir, that's not even a question. You know, okay. that, that's not you even get a to progress now in the game. Okay, you know, it's like uh, so. Uh, talk about first of all. Let's go, George Raveling. Yes. He's an iconic figure. Did you know what he was at the time as a young, smart young man from high school going out to Iowa? What you know, you passed up Michigan, Michigan State to go to Iowa. Did you know why you were going to that school to play for that man? Well, uh, when I first met Coach Ravelin, he started recruiting me. It was obvious that, you know, there was something that was infectious about him, his personality. And uh, I just remember him talking about basketball and things we could do. But intellectually, you know, he I really connected with him because, you know, he was handing me books. He was asking me what I like to read. He was interested in my family and he was just just so much more to me than just basketball. Yes, he was there and we were talking basketball and he was recruiting me to potentially come as be a student athlete at the University of Iowa. But I just connected with him on a totally different level. And uh, to any of anyone that knows him now, you know, you're going to end up talking about some type of literature. You're going to end up talking about some type of book, some type of current event. And um, he has been one of my mentors since I first met him when I was 18 years of age. Well, probably sooner because I was like 17 or so when I first met him. So and, um, you know, he's just been a terrific. He's had a tremendous career. His stories, he can just tell you stories for days. He knows every restaurant in every place around the world. So you never have to worry about food with him. But uh, most importantly, he's just a great human being. And um, I'm really proud to call him a mentor and uh him and I have been close ever since, and um, I've known him since I've been 17, 18 years of age. So that's I'm going over 30 years plus knowing him and uh, being around him in basketball life. And, uh, and whenever I see him, he always have words of encouragement. You know, we, um, you know, Rav uh, is an amazing human being. You know, last year he got very, very ill. Yes. And I was speaking at a clinic in Los Angeles, as you remember, uh, you know, for USA basketball. Right. And I called you up and uh, I found out that Rav was going to be there to watch myself and Kevin Eastman. Right. And when you walked in the gym, it was like his son walked in. I mean, that was such a thrill for him to see you. Talk about the relationship sometimes between a coach and a player. Well, yeah, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that actually I learned from you is, uh, you know, you're, you're, you get lucky when you're young in life to have a mentor. You're very young. But as you get older, you know, you begin to really become aware of the people that you, you know, you can work with and work for or, or what have you. You can begin to make those decisions and uh, decisions that you're going to make. Um, my, re my relationship with Coach Raveling has been special because, yeah, he, we can play, but our foundation of our relationship was always built on trust. And uh, he became one of the first coaches for me that was a truth teller. And uh, he could coach me hard. He could tell me what he needed to tell me. But also I knew he was going to wrap his arm around me and tell me, you know what, not, you know, because, you know, he thought I couldn't play or he wasn't going to give me the confidence. He just wanted to be honest with me. And then at the same time, he would always have positive things to encourage me. And I always respected that because that's a that's. You know, that that means a lot to a player. And then, you know, later on, I just learned about, you know, not trying to leave scars on people, 
not trying to just beat people down. And uh, you've always shared that with me. And I've had some great coaches who shared in that philosophy is always trying to be honest, be a truth teller. But at the same time, you know, for every negative thing that you get, you know, you want to have two or three positive things that you get. And uh, that's what made Coach Ravlin special. And that's one of the things I always appreciated about him is, you know, he was always there for me. If I were to call him right now, you know, if he can't pick up, I know he's going to call me right back. And and uh, he knows I love him. I know he loves me. And uh, I think the world of him and, and all the things that he shared with me in my life and his family. So it's just been one of those things that you over time, you know, you you, you grow and you grow together. And for him, when I was an 18 year old kid, I didn't know anything. But he's always been there for me, and I've always appreciated that, and I've always had the utmost respect for him in that regard. Donnie? Yes, uh, yes, BJ. Hey, thanks for being with us. Uh, one, one quick question for you is obviously you make that transition. you got a great coach and Coach Rav, and obviously uh, other Coach Rav well. Obviously, it's a big mentor to me through my career as well. I got to know him uh, through Coach Stern and some other people. And with Coach Glenn Wilkes here, obviously here at Stetson, his best friend in life, right. he's obviously Coach Rav. So uh, we have a lot of connections uh, through Coach Rav. And, and uh, I had the opportunity to be at the Clippers for a year and sure. grab there as well. So, um, But I understand the um, impact he makes as a coach, but also how he makes an impact in people. So you go from college having that kind of coaching and you walk into the NBA, and you're drafted, first-round draft pick in 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so you walk in there, and Doug Collins was the first year, uh, your head coach. Yeah, so Doug was there, but then he was released or let go that okay. summer. So my first year was actually uh, Phil Jackson's first year. Okay. Okay. So obviously, you go in there with Phil, and you just come from somebody like Coach Rath. What was the biggest difference you felt coaching now, coming from college, much more hands-on? So personality like a Phil Jackson. Well, um, you know, I I remember the first thing when I when I got to the NBA, it was very apparent to me that the pro game was a very different game, and everything that I had learned at the collegiate level, um, many of those things didn't really transfer to the professional level, and I had to, you know, I I, I there were things that you could do in college, but they don't always translate to the pro game. And what I mean by that was that the pro game was a totally different game. The spacing, the way the game was played, your preparation, the players, everything was different. And um, I was very fortunate that I had, I walked in and had a Hall of Fame coach, my right out of the, you know, right out of the gate in Phil Jackson. Um, I had some wonderful assistants, nowhere near the level as Coach Sir here, but uh, Tex Winters and, and Coach Johnny Bach. And those guys, they were fantastic. And, um, you know, I just remember I had to relearn the game. And uh, when I say relearn the game, I mean, literally, that's a different game. And when I played against those Detroit Piston teams, you know, that was a different team. And as a young kid, I didn't understand that, nor should I have understood the level of detail and the superior way of thinking about the game of basketball. It was just, I mean, it was eye-opening to me that, you know, that I couldn't just be the best player on the floor and really make an impact on the game. I had to not only prepare myself to play the game, but intellectually I had to take the game to an entirely new level way of thinking. I had to think two or three plays ahead. 
I had to think about matchups. I had to think about time and score. I had to manage the game. Um, so there were so many things that was going on. And I that was the first time that I really began to respect the game to the highest degree because I began to see the difference of a coach Chuck Daly. I began to see the Pat Riley's. I began to see intellectually that the way you have to play that game with this level of talent was far superior than anything I had been exposed to. So um, it was an eye-opening experience for me. And um, the pro game is a different game. That's the only place. The only place that that game is played is here in this country, right? You're not learning that game in high school. You're not learning that game in Europe or anywhere else. You have to learn that game here. So, um, yes, you know, the it's a ball and two baskets, but that's about it. It's a totally different game than the collegiate game, the high school game, or even, you know, FIBA over in Europe. And uh, that was the big thing that I learned is that I had to open myself up to really learning how to play the game at a different level. You know, BJ, uh, you know, probably I've coached 500 players in the NBA and uh, you're the smartest player I ever. No, seriously. (laughs) And we talk five, six times a week now. And the conversations that we have, you have broken down the triangle offense in our conversations probably 10 different times. You're a complete uh, expert on it. Will you talk to our coaches that are all on here? Talk about the triangle, why it was effective, and why could the Pistons no longer stop Michael or even later Kobe because of the spacing and different things? Well, um, well, first, the, the first thing about the triangle is if I can try to put an overall concept about it, it's, um, it is an offense, but what Phil Jackson really was is he was an outstanding, and I mean outstanding defensive coach defensively is really what the triangle offense is really all about because it gives you the proper spacing to make sure that you always are in position to, you know, have defensive transition, right? You always had the correct balance. And when you're playing in the playoffs, you know, you have to protect against the three things that all great teams are going to do, right? All great teams are going to defend. Once they have their great defensive possession, they're going to rebound the ball. And then, you know, if you're an excellent team, you're going to share the ball, pass the ball to one another. Well, the triangle offense, what it did was it always put us in proper position so that we can be we can always eliminate easy baskets in transition, especially in the playoffs. So that was Phil Jackson's philosophy. He truly was a great defensive coach. That's what he really was. Now, what we were able to do as far as when we were to execute the offense was we had to first have the proper spacing on the floor. And he was huge. Well, Tex winners, as I should say, was huge on the the proper spacing um when you have a proper spacing and everyone talks about competing because you have a lot of pride and no one ever really wants to like give up an inch right you play hard you you know in the last dance everyone's talking about competition but when you play in a triangle offense it really focuses on on one thing and you have to understand the concept you know never compete is how you actually compete in this league at the highest highest level so we always had a sequence with Coach Sir is quite he's w- well aware of called the automatic series pressure releases. So the only thing we actually practice in the triangle offense were the fundamentals of the game. So when we were if, if they took away the wing, you know, we were going to go immediately to our automatic series. We were always going to go away from pressure. And that's the 
that is essentially what the triangle offense is really all about. It's always having a counter to everything you can do. So we never, ever fought the pressure. And we could always we always had a fundamental base to make sure that we as a team could always function and operate under duress in a hostile environment. That was Tex Winter. He would say that all the time. His number one thing that he could do for us as a coach and a player relationship was to equip all of the players with the necessary skills to function and operate under duress in a hostile environment. Because Coach Sir and the Palace was a very hostile environment for those Chicago Bulls teams. <laughs> so that was the only thing we focused on. And then when you bring all of the other things as a group, now you can compete at the highest level. So um, we have these automatic series, we have pressure releases, and then we just made sure that we always have the proper spacing. Clearly you need special players, you have need plays and pl plays you have to operate out of timeout, so forth and so on. But that's essentially what the triangle offense is is that it's a it's a system that is designed to make sure that we are always in the proper spaces or spacing on the floor so that we can get back to our defense. We were an excellent defensive team. That's who we really were at the core. We were a team that was going to limit the other team to one shot and Tex winners and Phil Jackson and our coaches demanded that we shared the ball with one another. That was absolutely essential, whether it was Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen, myself, we always had to make sure that if we had a good shot and we could get a better shot, we were going to do that. And that became second nature for us. And that's the only way we were, that's the only way we could play the game at the highest level. You don't beat those Detroit Piston teams with a one man show. You don't beat the Lakers. You don't beat the Celtics. And then suddenly when we caught on to the idea as a group, um, that organization, Michael leading the charge was able to win six championships. So that is essentially what the triangle offense is, there's a lot of things that go, you know, we can talk about you know, the two pass and all of those things, but essentially it's really the fundamentals of the game because you can run every set out of the triangle offense. And we were, we were committed to playing that way because defensively we knew that was our, that was our bread and butter as a, as a team. And if we were going to win the championship. You sound like damn Tex Winter doing the clip. <laughs> You're not telling me to give away what the hell the triangle is. Well, no, I, I I know what it is. Now, yeah, I mean, right yeah, I, you know, make believe we're in a two guard front, and, okay. and you're the right guard. And you throw the ball to to Pippen at the right forward. What are you going to do? Well, okay, that that's what we call initiating. Where that's what Tex called the initiation of the offense. So you have a two guard front, and then once you throw it to the wing then that is what we call our two pass. So you initiate it. Now Scotty has a decision to make. And the triangle offense is always predicated on ball movement, player movement. So every time there was a pass, the players had to move. Now, as a guard who initiated the offense, I had a couple ways. Well, I had like three or four ways I could get to the, to the, to the, to the corner. I could go around Scotty, a roundabout, as Phil would call it, uh, or Tex would call it. I can make a direct line cut straight to the to the triangle, or I could make what's called a basket cut. I could I would take the basket cut and then go to the then go to the corner. Now, from the two pass, Scotty or the wing player would have an option to pass to any of the four players. And that was always predicated on what the defense did. We never called a play. Right. So whatever the defense was going to do, 
it was going to be dictated by whatever the defense was going to, where it was always going to be dictated to wherever, you know, whatever, you know, the defense was going to allow us to do. So um, the offense had a principle, you know, we were going to try to create some form of penetration, either with the pass, with the dribble or the shot, which made us unique is we had not one player that could do that. We had two players. We had Michael and Scotty who could always penetrate the defense with the dribble. So that created really a burden on the other team's defense because at any given time they could, you know, defer from the the triangle and create a great play. And that was kind of unique because we had two players who could do it exceptionally well. And that kind of gave us a, a full advantage, but that is basically what it is. You line it up. I could go, you know, the first pass I would look to is in the post and then we would play out of that. Right. The, the, the baseline guy would cut, Scotty Pippen was said, uh, you know, he would do the, the little exchange there with the guard at the top and then we would just play out of it. And then from there, um, you know, we would nine times out of 10, if we got into what we call our red series, five seconds or, or, or under, somehow the ball would always end up in Michael's hands, as Coach Sir would know. And he, I could still see him now screaming red, red <laughs> over there. <laughs> and we all know what that meant. And then uh, we played out of that. So. Even in the chaos, even in the chaos, we had we were organized enough to be able to get a shot up because we felt, and as one of our principles in the offense, that getting a shot up was was a key for us because that gave us a chance to offensive rebound, which uh, you know we wanted to take advantage of that as well. If you reverse the ball to Michael at the top, and Horace went into a pinch post, explain that action. I think it's one of the best actions in basketball. Yeah, so. Um, you know, we would have a two guard front. So that means that one of the guards, most of the time myself, I would go to the corner and that meant that Michael would be at the top. And then your your power forward uh, more times than not would be on the weak side. And then the, if Scotty, you know, made the pass or the, the wing player made the pass to the top. Now you actually have a two man two man game on the weak side of the defense and the pinch post. Uh, as you know, in the NBA game is one of the key areas that you get the ball to. You can get the ball to the pinch post. It, you know, we consider that that's like prime real estate in the NBA. You get it there because you can operate from there. That is one of the only areas on the court uh, that you can't double team from. So any player that can operate from the pinch post is probably a great player. And not many players can actually do that. So when I mean great players, you talk about Michael, you talk about Scotty. You talk about, you know, Kobe Bryant. You talk about Tim Duncan. So anytime you have an opportunity to work at the pinch post, um, you take advantage of that. So that was a a position on the floor that we always felt comfortable in. We knew we could get, you know, shots from. We knew we could create havoc for the other team's uh, defense. And uh, we really wanted to be able to execute that little two-man game there before the defense could really react to what we were trying to do. And on the strong side, when uh, Scotty reversed the ball, then they formed a double really for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what you would do is uh, why that action was going on. And that's one of the things that we loved about it. There was always action going on. There was never isolation basketball. So while that pinch post was going on on now, which was the strong side, back on now, which is the weak side, you would get a double screen. Mm-hmm. Okay. A double screen with a rub, right? So we had this action the screener was always the guy who was going to get open. So that was kind of our encouragement to one another to make sure that we were always setting screens because myself, John Paxson, Steve Kerr, we were always coming off, which 
you know, really good defensive teams were going to help so that there wouldn't be a curl action. And then Scotty Pippen, they would they would slip, slip the pick, make sure they always. So we always encourage all of our bigs, all of our players to screen and make sure that we reward them. So even before you would look for the shooter, we would always try to reward the guy setting the screen uh, first and foremost, because setting screens is important for everybody. And as we advance in the playoffs, you know, as you know, it gets harder and harder to get the ball in, in your operating areas. So screening became essential part of our offense and what we were trying to do. Donnie. Yeah, I think, uh, well, BJ, you walk in there and obviously they've won a couple uh, championships already when you arrived there uh, with the Bulls. So well, what was it like that first day you walk in there? Because you kind of seen Michael in a different way. Uh, I think about it. I coached Michael's sons at UCF. And right. I remember Michael asked if, if he could watch practice one day. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, uh, so we Mike sit over in the corner and uh, – so uh, I know being a coach, uh, how that felt. Uh, how him yeah, him. you're probably thinking, like, what is he really thinking about this? Yeah. Practice, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, a lot of people. So uh, what was it like walking in there as, as a player? Well, yeah, I, I remember uh, well, I had met Michael some years ago at a basketball camp. And um, when I was still in college and I, I was working at a at a, actually a Nike camp. And um, and at night. They said, you know, the guys are going to play. And uh, it was Michael was the it was his camp. And, you know, like like most, you know, you play and, you know, it's no big deal. And um, but I re I recall um, I was like 19 or so. Um, something was a little different about him. Like, you know, it wasn't like you were playing, you know, as a pro, you know, you play as a, as a professional. You kind of just. You know, it's summer, you know, you just want to keep yourself in condition and you play a little bit and sometimes the games will escalate a little bit. But for the most part, you're just there to keep your conditioning. Well, he was there to play and the game had been heightened by his intensity that he brought to the game. So it was very apparent to me that, you know, he was playing with a different effort and energy that I hadn't seen before, in particular in the summertime, Mm -hmm. not only on the offensive end, but the defensive end. And that was the most impressive thing about about him is I remember he just played the game with such energy that I was like, OK, how, what is he doing that the rest of us is not doing? He can't be in that much better shape than me. Mm-hmm. He was playing every possession as if it was his last possession, even in the summer. Now, fast forward. Um, once I got to practice, it was the same thing. You know, everyone else was playing, but these guys were professional. We all had pride. We all were prepared. I knew I was in shape, ready to play, but he was playing the game at a totally different level. And, you know, I wanted to match that level. I tried to match that level, but there was something that he could just get to that the rest of us couldn't. And the most incredible thing is great of a player as he was in the game. He's the greatest practice player I've ever seen. The, the, the hands down. And, and and I watched him do this day after day after day after day to finally I just came to the realization that, you know what, he he must be thinking about the game differently um, than the rest of it. And I asked him, I was like, what you know, what 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 what's your preparation for the game? And I remember him saying he was like, you know, I know it's impossible for me to win every game. But I you know, he goes, yeah, I know it's impossible for me to do that, but it is possible for me to try to win every game and win at everything that I do. 
And I, and, and I remember that was like my first week at practice. And I was like, okay, so he has the courage to like play the game as if it was always zero, zero, mm-hmm. right? He had the courage not to worry about whether he won or lost, but he had the courage to say, you know what? I can try to be the very best at everything I, everything I do. So if we were just doing a denial drill, he was the best at it. If we were doing a rebound box out drill, he was the best at it. If we were running sprints, he was going to be the fastest. If Whatever we were doing, he always, you know, was tr- trying to be the best and he was going to be the best. And um, it was an amazing to watch because, you know, as a player, you know, you, you play back to back, you play 82 games. I would watch him, you know, play one game Tuesday night, have 35 points, Wednesday night, have 40 points. And then as soon as the game was over with on Wednesday night, he's coming to the locker room talking trash about how he's going to kick you. You know what tomorrow in practice <laughs> and practice meant that much to him. Wow. I mean, I really wish that I could have gotten, if I, if I really wish I could, somebody probably has it that has the tapes of him practicing. I couldn't, to this day, I still can't imagine how he had that type of energy to do that. And he loved it. He just loved practice. Like our practices were like, they were better than the games. Mm-hmm. They were just like unbelievable. He just had this appetite to play the game with such joy and such energy that is beyond. Like, you know, you'd be like, oh, no one can really do that. I saw it. I I, I know it's possible. <laughs> I But I also know I probably will never see it again. But he just brought that level of excitement to the to the to the game every single time he touched the floor. You know, some players you see they, they can get up when the lights come on. He was there every single day, and uh, that was his makeup, and um, it was uh, phenomenal to see. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Talk about, BJ, what it's like when you know you have one of the best teams, whether it's in a league or, in, in, in your case, and it was in the NBA, that when you notice in high school and college, sometimes, unless you are the very best team, teams have trouble winning on the road how in the pros you almost wanted to play on the road more because your focus was so intense. Talk about their mindset going into a road game. Well, um, you know, I, 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 you know, again, when you get to the NBA, you, you begin to pick up on things and learn things. And for us in Chicago, for myself, um, you know, coach, sir, I don't know. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. My moment of truth as a player was the year that I lost to the Detroit Pistons in in the Eastern Conference Finals, Game 7. That was my moment of truth um, as a basketball player. Um, I found out who I really was as a player, as a person, that night. Um, It wasn't when I won a championship. It wasn't all of the things that I did, all-star games or anything. My moment of truth as as a person was right there. And I remember that feeling because that was the first time in my life that I had to admit that the team in the other locker room was better than me. They, I, I, I didn't lose that game because we didn't shoot well. I didn't lose that game because they played because we didn't play well and we could have played better. No, we played at our absolute optimum level, all of us, and we still lost. That was my moment of truth. That's when I understood what it meant to really love this game. And that moment has stuck with me for the rest of my, my life, from my careers. And I remember the next day I had to make a commitment. 
Either I'm all in with this or I'm all out because winning is, is a beautiful thing, but losing is, is it's miserable. It's miserable because you got to admit the truth to yourself. And from that moment on, I just made a commitment that no longer I was going to be afraid to do anything. If I was going to lose, I was okay with that. And I made a commitment. So when we started playing and going on the road, um, I just knew, we just knew how we had, what we had to do. There's just an understanding that you have when you can look at another guy and say, you know what, we got to execute and we got to find a way. There's an understanding that, you know what, you have plays on the board and that play may not work tonight, but we still got to find a way. And, you know, the thing that I, I love most is that when you go on the road, you find out who you really are. And winning was easy. But the thing that you that I understood after you do win, after you finally have some success, that you can never trust being happy ever again. That's a, that's the little golden secret that I learned, because there's always someone out there that's working just as hard. There's always someone out there that's looking to, you know, we were doing everything we could to beat the Detroit Pistons. And we. After we did beat the Pistons, you know, it's only natural to have a letdown. It's only natural to let your guard down and say we accomplished it. As a group, I have no idea how we all understood this. None of us were happy. We were like so upset <laughs> going into the next year. I don't know if Coach Sir and the Pistons felt that way after their first championship. We were so upset because now, you know, we didn't want to be a one-hit wonder. We came back the following year. No one was happy. I mean, we were just 92. We were just so in tune because we wanted to make sure that mentally we were in tune with every game because we knew we were going to take every team's best hit. And I, it's, not, it's nothing we ever talked about, but that's just the mentality that you have once you begin to experience some form of success. But, you know, first and foremost, you got to understand defeat. And that moment there in that Detroit Pistons locker room was where I found BJ. I found BJ Armstrong in that locker room and I've never forgot it. And, um, it's allowed me to go on and, and keep that same mentality, whatever I do, and I carry it with me every single day. You know, you almost uh, you almost had to let down in the finals because you were so happy you had finally conquered the team that was standing in your way. Yep. You know, and, and, and then you guys recovered and then just, you know, knocked the Lakers out, you know. But uh, that can happen sometimes, you know. Uh, but, you know, losing in the NBA when you're really good – when you guys destroyed us four games to zero in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then we were the second best team in the league, right? But you would have thought we won five games that year. <laughs> we, 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 we were just so we were devastated, devastated, and we never recovered. <laughs> yeah, and uh, look, and and that's that's what happens, and um, it's little things like that. You know, a little loose ball or one jump ball or, you know, those, those are the small things that you that you learn, especially playing in the NBA game. You know, even though we won 4-0, the respect we had for that group um, was it, it was incredible. I mean, we still respect that group because that's where we learned. That's where we earned our stripes was against that team. And that was a great team. They had great players. 
Uh, they had Hall of Fame players. They had a Hall of Fame player coming off the bench. They had a Hall of Fame coach. They were the best of the best. And most importantly, uh, we knew they were going to play every possession. And um, those were those were great times because that was, you know, we didn't ask them for permission to beat them. We had to go and take it. And uh, that's how the league was played back then. And um, those were those were great competitive uh, environments that I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that that time of uh, my career. Danny. Yeah, BJ, you've been around greatness uh, at all levels. Obviously, playing with Michael, obviously playing for Phil Jackson, been around some great coaches, uh, Chuck Daly, as Coach mentioned earlier. And that, then you moved into a different role in the front office there with the Bulls. Uh, so you was in a different role there. And then you were scouting as well. And yep. So I think it's good for a lot of these young guys, especially in college that we coach, they all want to be pros. And just understanding mentality-wise of what it looks like and, and what you look for now when you see guys coming in. Now being an agent and representing guys like Derrick Rose and some of the great players in the league, just understanding mindset uh, with these guys and, and what we look for at that level and, and understand what makes people great uh, when they're trying to put teams together. Uh, so young people think it's just about talent, which it does matter. But talk about some of the other things you think has huge impact from a mentality standpoint. Yeah, um, you know, being a being an agent and and um, has been interesting because I, I get a chance to be around the game and, and and still watch the game and select the players and and really evaluate the players. And once I got done playing, I when I went to the front office, uh, scouting was a big part of it. And um, and I and that's I think it gives me a you know, that's kind of been my advantage. You know, I would love to tell you, hey, I'm a great agent, but I'm only as good as the players that I work with. Um, and I've always known that and uh, and I believe that. So um, without, you know, trying to make it too long, I, I've really condensed it into like two simple things. But um, and those two things are talent and toughness. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I define talent? Um, the way I define talent that I've, you seeing that works up here in the NBA is you find something that someone can do repetitively. It can repeatedly do over and over and over again in a consistent manner. Right. You know, yeah. Some, some people can have a great game, but can you really do that every single game? Right. Reggie Miller, Joe Dumars, you know, Ray Allen, uh, those guys can shoot. <laughs> now, look, I try to find something that you can do repeatedly over and over again in a consistent manner. If you Dennis Rodman can rebound, you know, some people, you know, will have a good week of rebounding. But that's what Dennis Rodman does. You know, Mark Jackson, Isaiah Thomas. What is, what is Isaiah Thomas's talent? Yeah, he, he could do a lot of things, but that man could manage a game. Like none other. He could just manage a game. That's a talent, you know, when you look at Jason Kidd and Magic Johnson. So that's the first thing is I try to identify a talent that someone can repeat over and over again. And then I look for toughness and how I define toughness is who's going to show up to the game. Who's going to show up? This is a job. <laughs> OK, I'm not looking for the guy who will come out there and hit people. I'm looking for the guy who will say, this is my job and I'm going to show up no matter what. Mm -hmm. So that's just, for me, I have a no matter what, you know, little, little, little ledger or a little 
place over here and I look for the no matter what. That's my toughness. You know, Michael Jordan was going to show up to the game no matter what. (laughs) Okay. Absolutely. Uh, BJ Armstrong, I wasn't the most talented player, but I was going to show up because more times than not, who shows up is probably going to win that game more times than not. And you got to show up to do your job. So I, I try to simplify it into two things. And when I look for players and I try to identify people, I look for the, I look for the people with talent and whatever that talent is. And I look for people who are going to show up no matter what. That's my lane. No matter what's going on, they're going to show up. So, you know, people who can solve problems, people who get that they have to communicate and build relationships with people. Those are the people that I feel are the most successful. And um, I've had a lot of success just on those two things. I just look for talent, talented people. And then I look for people who are going to show up and do the job. And then all the other things will fall into place. And um, so that's kind of been my my little go to that I've been able to you know, do for the last 15 years. And I've had a lot of success doing it. Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's evident that a lot of the success, you know, you guys had, especially those years you were there, and when the Bulls continue to go on, and I was a part of a couple of pretty good teams at Florida, mm-hmm. back-to-back championships, and I think of those teams, because I get asked this question a lot, what made them so good, is I really thought guys were superstars in the role, and, and I start as I watched that last dance episodes, it seemed like, Obviously, you had some stars in Pippen and Jordan at the time. But no matter who else was a part of the team, guys like yourself, Paxson, Kerr, uh, even Dennis Rodman, when he came right. in later, uh, guys seemed like they were superstars in that role you're talking about. And it seems like young people right now, somebody just asked this question, they really struggle by staying in the fundamental role with asked for them on their team sometimes. They think they got to be the spectacular star and make super plays. So can you comment on that a little bit about how valuable that was on those teams to all in that role and understanding how that equalized winning by doing that? Well, yeah, um, you know, at some point when you become a professional, you all of us have been stars at some point in our career, right, whether it was high school or college. And then suddenly you get to the pros and you realize – some of these guys are just incredible, you know, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, that guy had 38,000 points with just one shot, right? Magic Johnson, I never was going to be 6'9". And you start seeing these wonderful players. And it was very apparent to me that if I was going to have a career in the NBA, that I was going to have to be a role player. And, you know, you know, there's a, I think there's an unwritten rule or a rule that you, you learn very quickly in the NBA. If you're going to be there or you're going to stay there is that, you know, the star players, the great players have to be great. And the role players have to play, play their role great. Now you got to figure out which one you are. And it was very obvious to me, you know, that I was going to have to be a role player and learn how to play my role great. Because that was going to give me the best chance to be on a successful team. And, you know, when you talk about Dennis Rodman and the antics and all of those things, you know, I think it was Coach Sir and in the league, you learn how to function with dysfunctional people. <laughs> okay. Right. And you you learn that. And and Coach Sir would always ask me, you know, if Coach Sir were to ask me what two plus two is, my reply coach would be five. 
would be five. <laughs> That's the NBA. And to the outside, I see what people see in Dennis Rodman. To us who played in that league, Dennis Rodman is the perfect player. Because when that game started, you knew that Dennis Rodman had the toughness bar none. He was going to show up. Now, I wouldn't recommend this to like college. I wouldn't recommend this to high school that you go to you skip practice and you do all of those things. But as a professional, you have to give people their respect and their space to figure out what it is they have to do to get themselves ready to play. And that's what you know about people and you have to manage people. So, you know, I, I think we live in a different world now. And uh, Coach Sir always loves to share with me the magic word that we always say, whatever. <laughs> right? yeah. That's that's our magic word. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you, you, something goes wrong. It's probably going to go wrong. But I know, always know Coach Sir and BJ are always going to say whatever, whatever. <laughs> and we're going to figure it out. And that's. That's that's the that's you know, that's that's the world you live in. That's how you that's how you deal. And uh, doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong. But you got to find a way because the games are coming. You know, you have 82 games and you just got to figure it out and you got to manage people. You got to manage players. And today's world, getting back to the initial question is, you know, these kids today, they have a lot of, you know, a a lot of things that we just didn't have. Thank goodness we didn't have the Internet. Thank goodness. We didn't have social media. Thank goodness I wasn't worried about how many likes I had when I post something, you know. But what I did have was, you know what, I had great people. I had great mentors. And you got to find those people who are committed to the same things that you love. And I was very fortunate to be around people like that. And I was very lucky to have mentors. I was very lucky to run and meet Coach Sir and play for Coach Daly and play for these people. And uh, today it's a little bit more difficult. And I think, and I'll, and I'll say it with this, as the popularity of the game has grown globally and the expansion and more people are participating in the game, you know, the one thing when I came into the league, you know, I, I was always around what I considered basketball lifers, right? I would play and then, you know, the other coach would be a lifer, Hubie Brown, is a lifer. You know, Dr. Jack Ramsey was a lifer. Lenny Wilkins. (laughs) No, they were just lifers everywhere. Like that's what, that's what you did. You know, Pat Riley, you know, Dick Mata, they were just lifers. Now the game is so popular, you know, that now, you know, now we're, we're, we're all into like analytics and all of those things, but the core of the game never really changes. But the truth of the game now it's, it's a little harder to find because you know, I was going to find these lifers every single night back then. You know, they're, 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 the game wasn't as popular. After 92, after these guys went to the Olympics, you look at the league now, a third of our league now are foreign-born players. So mm-hmm. you can see the impact of the game because now the global impact and the teaching of the game, they're coming from all different parts of the world, and this is what we have. So I just think uh, we just have to be more diligent uh, what we're saying. I think um, I think the game is a beautiful game. It's constantly evolving, but at the core of the game, it still remains the same. Even though now we're in this age of pace and space, but when the game gets to the playoffs, it always reverts back to the core of the game, and that's at the NCAA level, that's at the collegiate level, or at any level. It'll always revert back to defending, 
rebounding and passing the ball because those are the fundamental bases of the game of basketball itself. Hey, BJ, one of the things they didn't have uh, Sunday night in the last dance when they were so focused on Rodman going <laughs> to the palace, you know, to wrestle <laughs> was it was my son's 14th birthday. And you were there. And I had him in the locker room with Hulk Hogan all night with Rodman and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I wasn't in there. I, I was the ultimate dad that night. <laughs> my wife said, how did he like it? Oh, he had a great time. He, saw, he never saw it home, <laughs> you know. But it was it was wonderful. But, you know. I know it's it, it really is. You know, the whole Dennis thing. I I was with my son who's nineteen. Now he's like, Dad, did he really do that? And I was like, What? It was like it was like no big deal. I was like, Whatever. <laughs> That's just what people do. <laughs> They're like, How can he miss practice? It's the finals. And then watching Phil Jackson just brought the biggest smile because. That's just what it is, you know. It's uh, it's the NBA, and uh, if you're up there long enough, you'll see it all. <laughs> hey, at, Watts- at Watsonman, you represented some of the best players in basketball. You guys, for years, had the most players. Best player you ever represented? The best player. Um, well, hands down, the most talented player I've seen sure. is Derrick Rose. I mean, right. he's, I mean, he's hands down that he's just. From the moment I saw him, I I knew he had an incredible, incredible talent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this kid could get to the basket, you know, he just get to the basket. And he had something that not a lot of guards can do. He could finish at the basket at a very high percentage. So that was incredible. And the thing that I love most about him and uh, is his toughness. I mean, that kid there is as tough as you're going to get. Um, I mean, he's had every player is going to sustain, sustain some level of injury. And um, that kid is going to always pick himself back up. He's tough enough to deal with the media. He's tough enough to deal with all of the things off the court. And uh, he just had an amazing career. And to watch this young man at do what he's what he did at the point guard position, which I consider the, probably the hardest position to transition to win the MVP as a point guard or a lead guard in this league in year three was one of the most remarkable things I've, I've seen. And uh, he's been a special talent to just watch, watch his story, watch his journey. But without question, he is the most talented player that I've been around, um, you know, and look, Isaiah Thomas is, you know, I've always considered him the best little guard to ever play. Um, if Derek Rose doesn't get hurt, I think Derek makes an argument right there because okay. Derek, was bigger and stronger than any little guard that I've seen. Um, you know, he was big, athletic, strong, fast, could manage a game, could do it all. And, um, you know, he's a very special, he's a very special player and a very, a very special person. Coach. Coach, go right ahead. Last question there. We'll, we'll let BJ do. Go right ahead. Well, you know, the big, the biggest thing, BJ, uh, you and I have discussions sometimes very late at night on <laughs> It's so neat. It's many times rarely about basketball. We talk about race. We talk about leadership and stuff like that. Where did that all come from? And 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 I and I have to tell all of our listeners, I have never won an argument from BJ. No. Ever, ever. Well, Not even I, I'm married to a lawyer who's a litigator, so <laughs> I've never won an argument. And to hear you say that. Well, I'm married to one that ain't a lawyer. I <laughs> um, you know, um, 
I, I have to say, um, it's my parents, first of all. And, um, you know, my, my grandmother, when I, when I was younger, my grandmother made this challenge to me. She said, uh, she's from Tennessee and my grandmother never, she, she couldn't read or write, but she always had like three or four jobs <laughs> and she would always get around. And we'd always be like, yeah, we'd all be like, how's grandma getting around? Like, how is she, you know, she couldn't read, she couldn't write, but she always did what she had to do. And it was kind of a running joke within our family. Uh, when I went to high school, um, she sat me down. She said, you know what? You have no excuse to ever miss a day of high school, never miss a day of school. You have no excuse. I had an excuse. I have a built-in excuse. You have no excuse. And and not a lot of people know this, but um, my whole four years of high school, I never missed a day of high school. Mm. I never missed a day. Wow. And I and, and that was always out of respect to my grandmother because I saw a woman who couldn't read or write every single day did what she had to do for her family. And I figured at the very least <laughs> I could do was show up at class at the very least. And, you know, one of my most memorable moments in my life was when my grandmother came to visit me in college. She didn't really care about coming to see me play. All she wanted to do was go to me, go to class with me and sit in a lecture room because she said she never thought a woman from the university, from not the university, from Tennessee would ever be in a college classroom. Wow. Mm. Wow. And and so I always wanted to make sure that, yeah, the person was going to develop, but I knew I could never be the best player. I, uh, sorry. I always knew that the player was going to develop but I couldn't be the best player if the person wasn't going to develop. And I learned that from a woman who couldn't read or write. Mm. And uh, she always encouraged me to be the very best person I could be. And all she ever wanted was to be in a college classroom. And um, I remember, you know, she came to visit and it was the pride of, it was one of the, those moments in life I'll never forget where she carried my books and we walked in that classroom and she was the best student, <laughs> right? It, it was, it was just great. So, that was uh, one of those things that you just, you never know, you know how, you know, she's always inspired me, and that's all she ever wanted was just to walk into a college, you know, class that I did, I wanted no part about. <laughs> but that day was a special day, and I always honored that and always respected that. So whenever I'm feeling down or whatever, I would always think of that. That you know what. You know, I, I, I owe that because of uh, there are so many people that never have this opportunity. So I want to always to honor that and, you know, uphold my end of the bargain. She's done good. Yeah. Yes, she has. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, BJ. Well, listen, we appreciate the opportunity to uh, share your story and, and a lot of your knowledge. Uh, it's priceless. You know, to oh, us. man, thank you. Thank you guys there. Coach, sir, I, I love you. You're, you're the best. That's my, that's my mentor. That's my Yoda right there. He knows everything. And uh, Coach Jones, all the best. You've had a wonderful, wonderful career. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, uh, I say that with great humility. Thank you for, for uh, inviting me on to, uh, and being a guest on the show. Thank you. Love to my life. All right. <laughs> hey, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I know. I appreciate it.